0: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
1: KCBS Radio, original podcasts.
3: On a large ship bound for Hawaii in February 1905... Jane is putting literal miles between her and the poisoning attempt on her life just weeks ago. For a woman who has recently undergone such a traumatic event and faces the daunting task of removing the president of the university upon her return, Jane is in relatively high spirits. She socializes with the other guests on board and even at times shares the poisoning episode with her new friends with lighthearted humor. It's almost as if she couldn't imagine anyone who hated her enough to kill her. She has been looking forward to this trip for quite some time, originally planning to go to Europe before settling on Japan by way of Hawaii. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gurevich, and this is Bitter Academia, Episode 3, Golden Handcuffs. But not everyone is as excited about the prospect of going abroad as Jane is. Her longtime companion, Bertha Berner, had begged Jane to reconsider the trip before they had arrived on the ship. Bertha wanted Jane to turn around and go back to the Bay Area after they spent some time in Hawaii. She did not want to continue on. The secretary's elderly mother was ill, and Bertha felt compelled to spend as much time as she could with her. But Jane's demanding personality and busy schedule made that difficult. And so Bertha has found herself yet again stuck on a strenuous travel journey with no one but the aging Jane and her maid Martha Hunt for company. It's a wonder she didn't just jump overboard and take her chances with the sharks. Bertha had been in Jane's employ off and on for nearly two decades at that point, ever since the death of Jane's son, Bertha, just 19 at the time, was present at Leland Jr.'s memorial service in San Francisco in 1884, and wrote Jane afterward, offering her services. There weren't many opportunities for women to make money on their own at the time. Bertha had her mother to consider, and her unemployed brother to support. German immigrants, they had had a hard life before finding themselves in the Bay Area, with Bertha's mother suffering several childbearing complications over the course of her life. So at just 19, Bertha saw an opportunity to ingratiate herself with the wealthy Jane and took it. She began merely as Jane's secretary, but over the years, she became an essential part of Jane's life for other reasons. At five feet, five inches, Bertha was considered tall for the time, and with her gray eyes and abundant brown hair, she was still considered attractive at age 39 in 1905. Perhaps the most important part of Bertha's appeal to Jane was her ability to communicate with spirits. Much to the disapproval of the men in her life, Jane Stanford was an avid spiritualist. She turned to the popular movement after her son died as a way to keep connected to him. Instead of keeping that aspect of her personal life a secret. Jane spoke often and proudly of the guidance she received from her son beyond the grave. And after his passing, from her husband too. She believed wholeheartedly that the counsel of the two men in her life continued from the spirit world. As time went on, this belief bled its way into her business dealings, her activities with the university, and her personal relationships. And many including David Starr Jordan, Stanford's president, began to chafe at taking direction from a dead child. When you're as wealthy as Jane Stanford, it's hard to know who to trust. As we learned in the last episode, after the death of her husband, Jane was left largely on her own to handle a myriad of financial issues Leland left behind. Many of the people she relied on to guide her betrayed her, usually in an effort to appropriate some of her wealth for themselves. Jane became almost inherently distrustful as a result. I can't imagine how someone wouldn't. She grew to rely on only a handful of people in her life to support her, and all of their livelihoods depended on her.
4: So, yeah, after after Jane takes the reins, she is struggling with two major deaths in her family, you know, her son and her husband. And going forward, though, I I find it odd that her behavior towards her her existing her living family members becomes increasingly hostile. And I was kind of wondering what your perspective was on that, because if you lose loved ones, wouldn't you want to become closer to the ones that are alive?
0: You would unless you think they're after your money. Um, And the thing that sets her off is when Leland dies, he does um, not leave much money to her relatives. He leaves most of the money that he puts in the will to his relatives Mm -hmm. and gives the bulk of it to Jane. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, hers is tied up in the Southern Pacific. And what she realizes on both sides of the family, those who got money wanted more. And they Mm -hmm. wanted it in cash, not property. Mm -hmm. And those who didn't get money on her side of the family are furious and want money too. And she begins to think that all of her relatives are pretty much waiting for her to die so they can get her hands on the fortune. Um, She'll trust her brother Charles, but she will disinherit his children.
4: Which, again, I thought was very a strange move because, I mean, Jenny, like, she was basically like a surrogate daughter to Jane. And if the conflict is with her father, why would she then go so far as to disinherit his children?
3: Jenny Lathrop is Jane's niece, the daughter of Jane's brother, Charles. Charles is the one sibling that Jane seems to still have a close relationship with by the end of her life. He made money working in railroads with Leland and then by working at the university as Jane's unofficial second-in-command. But the relationship was often fraught, especially when it came to how Charles raised his daughter. Jenny's mother died when she was just four months old, and Jane promised to take care of her. Leland refused to let Jane adopt Jenny as he didn't want her to replace their son, Leland Jr. So Jenny was passed over to another sibling of Jane's and Charles, Anna, who took care of Jenny until her death when Jenny was seven. Jane loved Jenny, but when she and Charles got into an argument over a guardianship plan, she disinherited Jenny in a letter she entrusted to David Starr Jordan in the event of her death. She did this
0: to punish Charles. That's one of the things that made me realize that um, Jane Stanford was not a kind woman. (laughs) And Jane Stanford was a suspicious woman. Mm -hmm. And as Bertha Berner says about her, she knew how to use money. She figured that Jenny had gotten money from Leland um, Sr. She's one mm-hmm. of the heirs who does. And for whatever reason, and I cannot figure out why, she decides that um, she doesn't want to give money to Jenny. And more than that, she writes David Starr Jordan a note and says, to keep this, and after they die, she dies, if anybody tries to challenge the will, including her brother, to get money for Jenny, he has to bring out the money and have it... St- the letter, and have it state that it's her wishes that no money go to Jenny. And this is a child who she was devoted to mm-hmm. and who remains, I don't think ever knew all of this, devoted to her until her own death.
4: All right, so she didn't wind up giving Jenny much money, but her brother, he, he did wind up getting an inheritance after Jane died, right?
0: She He got some money from um, Leland Stanford, but not very much, and he did not get money either. Okay. Um, she cut... he. Let me go back on this. Okay. okay. <laughs> go by ahead. By her brother, if you mean her mm-hmm. brother. Yes. Charles. Charles. Charles is the one who does get a million dollars. Yeah. And Charles is the one who will then shut up the others. Because Jane, I think, was shrewd enough to know that somebody has to have an interest in making sure these wills go through. Mm-hmm. So she made sure her brother Charles was taken care of and he could do the dirty work on the other relatives. And he does.
3: This is just one example of how not just Jane, but the Stanfords in general, used their money to get their way, sometimes at the expense of others. During my stint on Ancestry.com searching for Jane's descendants, I actually found a few of Charles Lathrop's great-grandchildren. They have a different perspective on what happened, or in some cases, the truth has blurred or shifted over time. But I'll get more into that later. This type of financial retaliation wasn't limited to family. Those employed by the Stanfords felt the sting of their rescinded favor at times as well. In one instance, a longtime servant of Jane's at the Knob Hill Mansion, Ah Wing, was burned not by Jane herself, but by one of her brothers, Harry. Wing was known as the, quote, general factotum of the house in the Knob Hill Mansion. He was the Stanfords' servant for years and kept the place running especially when Jane was away while on her travels. Nothing went by him, and his duties often went above and beyond. Beginning in 1891, Jane's brother, Harry Lathrop, came to live at the Knob Hill Mansion. He would while away the rest of his life there, suffering from multiple different illnesses. Wing became Harry's primary caregiver for those eight years until he died from dropsy, congestive heart failure, and cirrhosis of the liver. In return for Wing's service, Harry had promised him a substantial sum of money in his will. In reality, Harry left everything to Jane and his two surviving brothers. In the wake of the betrayal, Wing decided to return home to China, intending to wash his hands of the Stanfords for good. Jane tried to convince him to stay by promising him $1,000, which would be more than $35,000 in today's money. The condition? he had to remain with her until her death. Burned once before, he decided to go to China anyways, eventually returning to Jane's service in 1902, just a few years before she died. It was in that year that Jane amended her will after her estate increased in prosperity. She increased the allotments to her family, servants, and charity. Specifically, she gave $1 million to her brother, Charles, $15,000 to Bertha Berner and $1,000 to Ah Wing. A pattern of servants becoming frustrated or even fed up with Jane's demanding personality was already quite established by then. Wing wasn't the only one who left, only to be called back once again by the siren song of fortune. Bertha Berner, Jane's closest companion, actually left Jane's employ several times over the two decades she worked for her. She would gloss over these absences and the eventual memoir of her time with Jane. But the absences have been well documented at this point. It's likely she often struggled over disagreements with Jane about dividing her time between her boss and her own family. According to the author of the book about this case, Richard White, these disagreements also might have had something to do with Bertha, a single, and reportedly attractive woman, and her relationships with men. There are at least two gaps, with likely a third in her employment history with Jane. Bertha left for two and a half years before returning in 1893 after Leland's death. She was likely gone again for two years between February 1897 and the spring of 1899. Finally, she left one more time between 1899 and 1900 and was even temporarily replaced during that absence. And along with these departures, Bertha Burner was eventually caught doing something unsavory, red-handed.
1: I knew there was this issue about uh, skimming money from Jane.
3: This is Laura Jones. We met her briefly in the first episode. She works as the Stanford University archeologist. Her job is to know everything about the history of the campus and by extension the stanfords she is probably the person who knows jane best at this time she even helped advise richard white for his book the reason she knows so much is that part of her job is to go through and help preserve the things on campus that belong to jane and those around her the money skimming she was referring to was a scheme that bertha burner and jane's butler at the time albert beverly engaged in with a couple of other servants. This came about during a round-the-world trip the group took between 1903 and 1904, going from Australia to India to Egypt and then to Europe.
1: That, that, when you traveled internationally with Jane and she bought art, because she was filling the museum, and she bought stuff. So Jane would go into the gallery or wherever it was, and she'd pick some stuff out, and then she'd go back to the hotel and take a nap. And you'd have to go back and make arrangements, make the payment, do the shipping. And these merchants would give them gifts. Yeah. OK, so little artifacts or
3: and sometimes cash. Bertha Burner and another servant both claimed that they reported these side transactions to Jane.
1: As you know, and Richard is right about this, Bertha Burner and Nash, they both claimed that they reported all of this to Jane you know, that they would get back to the hotel and say, okay, we made all the arrangements. And by the way, the merchant gave me this. Okay. But when they were blaming each other, there was a lot of talk about whether all of that was really transparent to Jane.
4: I see. Yeah.
1: So if, if Bertha actually had embezzled anything, she might've been terrified of being discovered. Right. Right okay yeah, so so there's you know that's so there is this other kind of gorilla 800 pound gorilla out there which is this notion that that Bertha might have been profiting from these transactions
3: at the time Bertha Burner and her partner in crime the already married Albert Beverly were rumored to have been partners in more ways than one. If Jane had known about the romantic affair, this likely would have scandalized her more devout sensibilities. Around this time in 1903, her devotion to God and spiritualism had increased to a point where she toyed with refocusing the university entirely on the study of spirituality. It's unclear what the direct result of this possible financial betrayal and extramarital affair was, but when Jane returned to Palo Alto in May of 1904, Albert left her service. The dismissal was reportedly amicable, at least at first, with Jane allowing him to remain living at one of her properties, until abruptly asking him to leave three months later. Bertha, no doubt, was unhappy about losing someone who had become a companion, but it's unlikely this crossed Jane's radar. Bertha's relationship with Jane has been framed in a certain light, not just by Richard White's book, but by other accounts of Jane's life. In his words, and in the words of others, Bertha is at odds with two demanding old women in her life, Jane and her mother. Jane, in turn, resents Bertha for her youth and sexuality. Honestly, this is one part of the narrative I don't agree with, and I'm not the only one.
1: I'm not sure, you know, I, because I, I I see that I, I see gender bias in some of his arguments, and so when he wants Bertha to be all motivated by sex and love and romance, and family duty, I worry that that's a misogynistic view to view of Bertha. I would oh, yeah. rather think she was motivated by money, or she was motivated by you know some self-interested interpretation of mercy killing, right? that she's motivated by something other than, you know, hormones would be, would be uh, more palatable to me.
4: Yeah. Yeah. More preferable. I think for most people,
1: <laughs> but that's, but you know, that's, but th- that's the sort of bias I see that. And Richard is picking it up from other sources. It's not like he invented this, right. This Jane's hysterical and, you know, um Bertha's, you know, some sort of, attractive, you know, adventurous. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I just don't. And, and you know, people can be highly motivated by jealousy and love and lust and all that kind of stuff. But I don't really think that's what's going on with the spinster Bertha and the 75 year old widow. Yeah, I don't think this is a some sort of love triangle story. I just
4: don't I'm not feeling it. I, I don't think so either. That's why I was curious to hear what you thought. Yeah. And I, you know, his depiction of Bertha is also kind of inherently sympathetic. And I was curious, you know, if you if you were sympathetic to her, too. Less so. Okay.
1: There's something about Bertha that's very grasping and opportunistic that worries me. The way she insinuates herself into Jane Stanford's life, where she crashes the funeral and then offers to write. Thank you letters for the condolences, and then somehow, in her un- state of unemployment, manages to get hired as the secretary. It's it's almost like she engineers this, right? Which I think is a little strange.
4: Yeah, the whole story about how they met still seems a little too fantastical, but um.
1: <laughs> right. And and to your point, she's traveling all over the world, right? she's staying in these first-class hotels. She's ta- Jane is paying for her wardrobe. I mean, it's, it's not a bad lifestyle, right? And she tries to quit once. Jane gives her a raise. She doesn't have to be the secretary anymore. She's just the companion. I mean, she seems to be getting what she wants.
3: Meanwhile, Bertha's mother's health has continued to decline, and Jane shows no signs of slowing down her travels. By December of 1904, Jane returns to the Knob Hill mansion with Bertha after the trip where the money-skimming came to light. During this brief interval, conflict arose between the servants yet again, this time between Ah Wang and Bertha, over whether or not it's appropriate for Bertha to drink coffee with the other servants. But this little spat is the least of Bertha's worries. Jane has plans to go on a prolonged trip at the start of the new year. If Bertha comes she has to leave her sickly mother. If she stays, she'll be left without an income. While discord and secrets brewed under Jane's roof, the same were thriving at her school. As she gallivanted around the world, Jane still wielded the almighty dollar, and this meant she ultimately had the final say on all the operations at the school. This included hiring and firing power, the building of new buildings, the students themselves, and the curriculum. First and foremost, Jane had the final say over anything the president of the university, David Starr Jordan, did. This extended from big picture items to even the smallest, most inconsequential things.
2: Just to give an example of, let me, I have a letter here that, uh, it's a telegram that Jane Stanford had sent to David Starr Jordan on, let's see, June 1903, so two years before she was murdered. And this, to me, is the smoking gun in their um, contested relationship, which is that Jane basically controlled the purse of the university. David Starr Jordan controlled the operating uh, day-to-days. Now... (laughs) this all involves a doorstop which is if you heard of the doorstop <laughs> yeah and in this telegram i mean it's probably better when you read it but it's very short so let me say i'll just read dear sir to my great surprise i learned that a large number of certain patent door sorry i learned that a large number of certain patent door chokes were in place on the doors of the chemistry building. The order not given through the business office at a cost I understand of $3 each. $3, which I should say in today's money is $80. So the the little uh, rubber thing on the floor to stop the door handle from busting through the wall, was $80.
3: This is Jake Warga. We met him in the first episode. He gave me the virtual tour of Stanford's campus and the lowdown on some of the stranger details about the university during Jane's life. This is one such example that, like he said, really illustrates Jane and David's relationship. Here's the rest of the letter, as read by Jake.
2: Do you think this disobeying all business rules as laid down should be tolerated? I do not and have ordered Mr. Lathrop not to pay for them, as it is an extravagance and useless expenditure of money. I protest against it, and have ordered Mr. Lathrop not to foot any bills that are not ordered through his office, however small they may be. Respectfully, Jane Stanford. So the basically, there's the war. And it it goes much deeper than that.
3: The Mr. Lathrop she's referring to is her brother Charles, essentially her second-in-command on university matters. Perhaps this is just me, but I wouldn't be surprised if a woman with this much authority over their careers left a lot of intellectual men with their mustaches in a twist. And oh boy, it showed. Imagine that you are Jane Stanford for a moment. You've just opened up a university. Your husband has died, leaving you all alone to command a large fortune and a newborn school. Then, a few years later, amidst your best efforts to keep the school afloat, one of the faculty's more popular lecturers gives a presentation criticizing the use of Asian labor in the railroad industry. And by extension, your recently departed husband. What would you do? If you were a man at that time, the answer would probably be quite simple. It's disrespectful, case closed. Fire him. This was the position Jane Stanford found herself in the fall of 1896. Edward Ross, the chair of the economics department, gave a lecture that she felt was disrespectful not only to her husband, but to the fortune that made the school possible, that paid Ross's salary. He criticized the use of Asian labor, not in defense of the laborers, mind you, critical of the laborers. He was a racist and anti-immigration.
1: You know, and Leland Stanford had, you know, both supported Chinese exclusion and then later recanted about that. He has a very complex relationship with Asian labor. Uh, Jane Stanford had Asian business partners. She publicly objected to Ross's um, anti-immigration points of view. And so, I, you know, when you bring that into the conversation... It's different, right, than if it's just, oh, look at this stupid, ignorant, spoiled rich woman firing this guy because she doesn't like him, right? Yeah.
3: It's,
1: it's, a, it's actually a much more nuanced and complex story than that.
3: This is Laura Jones again, offering her take on the so-called Ross affair. After this happens, Jane tells David Star Jordan to get rid of Ross, which sets in motion a series of bumbling missteps by David that Jane is inevitably blamed for. And,
1: you know, men who are, you know, you know, I can't really say they're clutching their pearls because these aren't the kind of men who wear pearls. they not <laughs> trendy enough for pearls. But they're, they're, they're so aghast by the notion that she would criticize a faculty member who was making, you know, racist statements about Asian labor. Right. That, how dare she criticize him, right, um, and want him fired. And that's not the only reason that Ross got fired, but he was a terrible bigot and racist. Yeah, the Ross affair is full of sexism. Yes. Right. And, you know, if Ross had said the things about California as the home place of the Aryan nation today, he probably could still get fired at Stanford. Yeah. So that he also criticized Leland Stanford well, while he was taking Leland Stanford's money. I mean, you, you just have to ask, you know, um, uh, you know, we're all living off the. Uh, everyone who works at Stanford is living off the Stanford's. Right, you need to make your peace with that.
3: Instead of listening to Jane's wishes, David scolds Edward Ross, reminding him that the school emphasizes non-partisanship and removing him from the chair in economics and giving him a chair in sociology. After making these changes, David defends Edward to Jane, and temporarily, she's mollified. But the next year, he makes another presentation, this time to a socialist group, which, coming from a capitalist background, upsets Jane once again. She tries to get him fired for another two years while David continues to try to defend Edward. David's primary concern is that if Edward is fired for these speeches, the university will gain a reputation for not respecting academic freedom. This could damage it while it's still in its infancy
1: a lot of the academic freedom stuff about Ross, I understand it. um, But I, I think it then gets unnecessarily colored with misogyny. Right. So you can have a discussion about, so, so so for example, they want to talk about how terrible it is, right? All the things that, that, that Ross got fired, but they're burying the, his, the story of his racism, of his white nationalism. Right. So you, if you're going to be, if you're going to look at it in full, right? You, you need to look at all of it. And the notion that somehow Stanford has some horrible stain because Ross got fired. Um, you know, we're one of the top universities in the world. I think we got over it.
4: Uh, yeah. <laughs> and,
1: you know, and it, it, so I, you know, some of the protesting is just really too much.
3: Finally, in 1900, Jane got her way but David was still hoping to avoid an issue. So he wrote Edward a letter asking for a quiet resignation at the end of the 1900-1901 school year. But Ross wasn't going away quietly. He went to the press with a statement that he was dismissed for his political opinions, betraying David and laying the blame on Jane. He had private correspondence with David published, and David writes that Jane is the reason for Edward's firing. In the wake of that, Other faculty members resigned, and the issue was taken up by the alumni committee and the American Economic Association. Eventually, the scandal settled, but it was likely that this first betrayal Jane experienced at the hands of David set the wheels in motion for the scandals yet to come. The following year, in 1901, a professor, Charles Gilbert, was caught having an affair with a former student. The pair were caught canoodling by a Stanford librarian who then reported it to another professor and Jane Stanford ally, Julius Goebel. Goebel was aware of the affair, but Charles Gilbert was a loyal follower of David Starr Jordan, who then tried to frame the librarian as a pervert to distract attention away from the affair. The librarian tried to write to Jane to tell her his side of the story of what really happened, but it didn't seem to help. He resigned, but not before the story was found by the San Francisco Examiner, which ran with it in their pages, marring the reputation of the university once again. It seems as time went on, David began to meddle even further in faculty affairs over personal vendettas and prejudices. In complete contrast to how he protected his friend, Charles Gilbert, from losing his job over the affair, he dismissed Latin professor Ernest Peace in 1902. Ernest was not a fan of David, and the two had a long history of conflict until finally he was told to find a position elsewhere. Ernest, like the librarian, tried to appeal to Jane Stanford, forwarding along all of his correspondence with David. He accused David of many things, including how David blamed the entire Ross affair on her. It was this event that was likely the final blow to Jane's confidence and David's abilities as president. On February 21, 1905, Jane checks into the Moana Hotel on Waikiki Beach in Honolulu, planning to stay for about three weeks. The hotel is beautiful. It's still there today, and while renovations inside mean that Jane's original room no longer exists, the exterior is still very much the same. Four large white columns welcome visitors up to the entrance, flanked by palm trees. The white building is definitely reminiscent of some of the Gilded Age mansions I've seen photos of that used to crown San Francisco's Knob Hill. This isn't surprising, as it just opened a few years prior to Jane's arrival in 1901. When Jane finally makes it to the hotel, the story of the first poisoning attempt makes its way into the San Francisco papers. But the detectives hired by Jane insist that there was no poisoning to sources, and blissfully away on a tropical island, Jane seems untroubled by this turn of events. She spends the next week taking in the pristine beaches and the crystal-blue waters. She, Bertha Berner, and her new maid, May Hunt, spend time together going on excursions and engaging in typical activities for wealthy women at the time. Her last day alive started out very much the same way. On February 28, 1905, a Tuesday, Jane Stanford went on a carriage ride along the coast. The drive was long and slow so Jane and her companions could enjoy the cliffs and the countryside. Around 1 p.m., the party stopped and consumed a hearty lunch of hard-boiled eggs, tongue sandwiches, oranges, chocolate, and gingerbread in a grove. At 4 p.m., she went to rest in her room, number 120. Bertha and May were nearby in room 122. She and Bertha went to dinner at 6.30 p.m., and she only ate a bowl of soup because of the large lunch. Little did she know that the simple bowl of soup would be her last meal. Next time on Bitter Academia, we hear about what Jane's last moments were like, as later recounted by the people who witnessed
2: it. And supposedly her last words were, my jaws are stiff this is a horrible death to die
3: and how the narrative of her death was quickly changed by those close to the university likely because the nature of her death and her known love of spiritualism could discredit her and her will
1: you've already got the hysterical woman right yeah. so you you could add on top of that unbalanced mind right yeah. and you know They are very paranoid about lawsuits because of the first lawsuit.
3: And we will learn more about what spiritualism is to those who practice it and what it likely meant to Jane. Many people investigated spiritualism as a result of bereavement and really um, a kind of a, a rejection of the idea that death was a final separation. Bitter Academia is an Odyssey original podcast, Researched, reported, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Edited by Myron Kaplan and Matt Pittman. Production, engineering, and sound design by Matt Pittman. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Bitter Academia on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen.